Well, as we join together with our friends in the Community Life Center, let me invite you once again to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke as we continue our journey through Luke's Gospel between now and Easter. As Luke tells us, simply put, the story of Jesus. This is Luke's account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today we come to the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel. We're jumping ahead slightly from where we were last week. Let me ask you to join me beginning in verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, it's hard to remember that social media has not been around that long. For example, Facebook was only launched in 2004. I know that because I read it on social media. And yet, in that short span of time, this and other online platforms have profoundly impacted the way we communicate and exchange ideas. In fact, I recall a story from the nightly news several years ago. There was some sort of technical glitch out in California that caused Facebook servers to go down for a couple of hours. And the local emergency dispatcher finally had to put out a call and ask people, please stop calling 911 to tell us that you can't get onto Facebook. We know it, and we can't do anything about it. That's how dependent we've become upon these platforms. Now, one of the great benefits of social media is that it grants equal access to everybody. Everybody can be a part of the conversation. Nobody's shut out. Anybody can express an idea or an opinion and probably find an audience. On the negative side, it also means that people can post opinions even if they are completely uninformed about the topic. And facts are no longer required to back up your opinion. You can just say what you want. 
Social media has profoundly amplified the power of human opinion. But we would be wrong if we said that social media was the cause of this. The truth is that humans have always been quick to form judgments and make opinions about people and about events. To a certain extent, you might even say it's necessary that we do so. Let's say, for example, that you meet someone new at work, someone who's just come on board as a part of your team. Upon meeting that person, you almost immediately begin sizing him up, forming evaluations of him, asking yourself, is his personality compatible with mine? Is this person a potential threat to me or is he an ally? Is this someone who can help me get where I need to be or is this someone going to be an obstacle that I've got to overcome? Is this someone I should draw in close as a friend or should I keep this person at arm's length. Not all relationships are created equal, not all people are equally trustworthy, and so to a certain extent you have to form those kinds of judgments. The problem is that once we form those initial opinions, we generally are not very open to having them challenged. We have a tendency to filter all of our experiences through the lens of our first impressions so that we primarily seek to confirm what we've already come to believe and we ignore any data that would suggest otherwise. There's a name for this. Psychologists call it confirmation bias. It is the realization that we have a tendency to prefer information or experiences or data that props up what we've already come to believe and we tend to ignore the rest because it's just easier to live life that way. And so, if you're a fan of Donald Trump, you tune into Fox News. If you dislike Donald Trump, you tune into CNN. Everybody gets to hear what they already want to hear. Nobody has to change their mind about anything. It's just easier to live that way. Now, I'm not interested in debating politics. I'm simply pointing out that this is a tendency we humans have always had. We even do it. We might say we especially do it when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is one of those characters who sort of drives us to make strong opinions and we tend to lock into them once we have. In fact, it's been happening almost from the very beginning. Since he emerged on the scene, people have been forming opinions and making judgments. Who is this guy? What's he all about? Is he a prophet? Or is he a lunatic? Is he a man of God? Or is he the face of the devil? Were all these miracles that he performed legitimate? Or is this just some elaborate hoax? Where does he get all these ideas that he's teaching? And what's his agenda really all about? From the beginning, people have had a wide range of opinions on their answers to these and related questions. In today's reading, we've jumped ahead a few chapters from where we were last week up to Luke chapter 9. And that means that in today's reading, by the time we get to this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been at it for a while now. We don't have an exact timeline, but, but his ministry has begun to gather some steam. 
He's traveled around from village to village. Thus far, he's primarily been confined to an area around the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is not a very big geographical region, an area scattered with small villages that he's moved about between and amongst. And as he's gone, he's called disciples. He's preached sermons. He's healed diseases. He's calmed a storm. He's performed several other miracles. He's challenged the Pharisees. And he has uh, fed a hungry crowd with just a few loaves and some fish. In fact, he has even raised a dead child back to life. All that's happened in the intervening chapters that we skipped over. And so not surprisingly, he's begun to stir up quite a response. People are beginning to become curious about this fellow. And wherever he goes, crowds tend to follow. Now the Bible doesn't tell us much about the inner thoughts of people. It doesn't delve into their inner conscience. So we can only speculate about what was going through the minds of those people who gathered around him. But it's really not that hard to imagine. Because after all, people are people wherever you go. And even without the benefits of social media, people were doing what people have always done. They were sizing him up. They were forming opinions about him, making judgments of him. And it was quite an undertaking because by now, Jesus has revealed himself to be many things. He's a teacher, he's a healer, he's a miracle worker, he's a friend of rejects, he's a religious radical, he's all of these things. And and so it's not hard to imagine that, that in the crowd that has gathered around him, there are all sorts of opinions and assumptions and judgments and expectations about who he is and what he's all about. That gets reflected in the question that Jesus puts to his disciples at the beginning of today's reading. He looks at the disciples and asks, Who do the crowds say I am? Sensing the wide range of opinions that people had, Jesus was curious to know what people were saying of him. If this had happened in modern times, Jesus might ask the disciples to check their Twitter feed and see what was trending. And the disciples responded to his question by offering a sampling of some of the things that were being said about him that they had picked up on as they listened to the buzz around them. Some people said that Jesus was a reincarnated version of John the Baptist who by now has already been executed by Herod. Others said that Jesus was some resurrected version of the great Old Testament figure Elijah. Still others said that he was a prophet of some sort or another. You get the idea. People were divided in what to make of him. Popular opinion was all over the map. Now, without some background info, some of these might seem as odd things for people to say. I mean, what do Elijah and John the Baptist have to do with anything? And it helps, therefore, to have a little bit of context. You see, Jesus came into the world in a season that was highly charged with political and religious tensions. You think our day is like that? It doesn't hold a candle to what life was like then. 
Because you see, by this point in history, Israel had been under foreign rule for centuries. It began way back in the 6th century B.C. with the Babylonians who conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and hauled Jerusalem's leading citizens off into exile. The Babylonians were followed by the Persians, who were then later conquered by the Greeks, who were then later succeeded by the Romans. And in each case, Israel had just been handed off like a pawn in some giant geopolitical chess game. And so they found themselves being passed from one oppressor to the next. And somewhere in that long chain of humiliation, the Old Testament prophets had begun to speak about something that God was going to do. They said that God was going to send a Messiah, a word which when translated literally means anointed one. Someone who would come under the power of God's Spirit to set His people free. Now in foretelling of this, the prophets had given little glimpses and little snapshots of what this Messiah would be like, but a lot of the details were still missing, and so people did what people always do. They filled in the missing info with their own imaginations. They began to form their own opinions and their own judgments about what the Messiah would be like and what he would look like and what he would act like and what he would do when he came. So again, people had their opinions. And while there were probably a wide range of views on this general subject, there was, largely to say, a, a general consensus on the matter. Whatever the Messiah might look like, it was clear that when he came, he would lead his people out of bondage and into freedom. And if you are an oppressed people and someone tells you that, it can only mean one thing. It means that the coming Messiah will have enough political and military savvy to launch a campaign and defeat your enemy and lead you back to the glory days of yesteryear. That's what people were expecting. But tucked away in the words of the Old Testament prophet Malachi, there's an interesting statement. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God, through the prophet, says this. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now those foreboding-sounding words offer an important clue. God had said that before the Messiah came, He would send someone ahead of Him who would come to prepare the way for His coming. The Messiah would have a forerunner. Now, you and I have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight and even more importantly, the benefit of the witness of the New Testament. And so when we read those words, we intuitively get it that that's speaking of the role that John the Baptist fulfills. He was the forerunner to the Christ. He was the one who came in the spirit of the prophet Elijah to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. But the crowds in Jesus' day didn't know that. They didn't have a New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. And so they were saying that in one way or another, 
Jesus was the one who would come in the spirit of Elijah. What they were seeing in him suggested to them that Jesus might be the forerunner of the Messiah. Maybe, they were thinking, maybe he's the one who's become to prepare the people for the arrival of God's anointed one. But it hadn't yet occurred to anyone that Jesus might actually be that anointed one. Was he a miracle worker? Yes, clearly. Was he a great teacher? Yes, clearly. Was he a prophet of God? Probably so. But the Messiah of God? Well, almost nobody was thinking that. And the reason was simple. Where was the army? Where was the battle plan? Where was the great campaign strategy that was going to defeat the enemy? Any rational person would know that these are the things a true Messiah would bring with him. And Jesus had none of that. His army consisted of a ragtag band of fishermen and tax collectors who wandered around with a confused look on their face most of the time. His battle plan consisted of a tendency to stand up and preach whenever a crowd gathered. And his campaign strategy seemed to consist of hanging out with prostitutes, the demon-possessed, and the poor. And so in people's minds, there was no way that they could have imagined that Jesus would possibly be the one whom God had sent to set them free. So the people were glad for Jesus to heal their diseases. They were glad to hear the lessons that he taught. They were glad to have him fill their hungry bellies. But it didn't occur to anyone that Jesus was the Messiah. That was the opinion they had formed. And like I said, we tend to hold on to our opinions once we make them, don't we? Of course, Jesus already knew all of this. When he asked the disciples what the people were saying about him, he didn't ask because he was confused or uncertain. And he, and he wasn't trying to find out what the popular opinion was so that he could adjust his message to fit the crowd's expectations. He asked the question because he was trying to set the stage for an even more important question. Once the disciples reported what they had been hearing others say, Jesus turned the conversation back on them and made it intensely personal. You'll note that in the very first line of the passage that we just read, we are told that Jesus and his disciples were alone in a private place. That means the crowds are removed from the scene for just a moment. In this brief moment in time, Jesus and the disciples have separated themselves from the conflicting demands and the competing expectations and the wide range of opinions that's spinning around out there. And Jesus takes that moment of private solitude to direct an intensely personal question to them. He looks at them and says, okay, that's fine. That's what everybody else is saying. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Now let's recall that Jesus by this point has already established his identity. A couple of weeks ago we were in Luke chapter 6. And we heard Jesus declare with his own mouth that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, by his own declaration, Jesus says he stands above the law because he himself was both the giver and the fulfiller of the law. 
And that means that Jesus already is Lord, even when he asks this question, and he's not looking for some public affirmation of the disciples to feel better about himself or, or to quiet some inner voice of conflict within him. He asked the disciples that question for one simple reason. He wanted them to know that at some point they had to separate from the crowd and ask themselves and decide for themselves what were they going to do with Jesus? They couldn't rely on popular opinion. They couldn't rely on public assessment. Instead, they, along with anybody else who would come after him, would have to decide for themselves, who do you say I am? The people might not be ready to name me as Lord. But what about you? That question is why this story is still important today. Because it forces all of us to make an intensely personal choice. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? Who do we as a church say Jesus is? I'm not asking if we understand what four out of five people out there are saying about Jesus. I'm asking what do we say about Him? What is our response to Him? Because at the end of the day, the answer to that question will determine everything else. When he asked that question, Jesus moves the conversation out of the realm of the abstract. Because Jesus is a safe character as long as we leave him there. As long as Jesus is just some historical figure to be discussed and debated, as long as he's just some religious figure to be studied and analyzed, well, then we can offer our opinions and make our judgments. And then we can go on with our lives as they were before. But as soon as Jesus turns his piercing glaze towards us and asks us that question, then we each are confronted with a choice we have to make. What are we going to do with Jesus? How are we going to respond to the claims that he makes about himself? Who do we say he is? Think of it this way. Let me ask you a question who would you personally rank as the greatest presidents in the history of the United States? Depending on your historical perspective or your political leanings, you might say it was Abraham Lincoln or, or Franklin Delano Roosevelt or JFK or Ronald Reagan. And, and you could give all sorts of reasons why you believe that and you could passionately debate somebody who holds a different opinion. But but while you admire that person and are interested in that person, it is an admiration that is offered from afar. Because these great figures from our history have come and gone. But I doubt that your life has been radically and certainly not eternally 
altered by any of them because in the end that is what they are they are historical figures whom we can debate and whom we can discuss and then we can put them back in the history books and put them on the shelf and go on with our lives as they were before but when Jesus asks this personal question he's trying to take that option away from us because we can't hold Jesus at a safe distance and admire him from afar. Well, we can. But not if we're willing to let him be who he really is. Because Jesus is not just some religious figure to be discussed or debated or even sung about. He is the Lord of Lords. and He is the King of Kings. He is the one who was present at creation, the one through whom and for whom and by whom all things were made. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And most importantly, He is the one who died and is alive forevermore. He and He alone is the one who grants forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And so the question every single one of us must ask for ourselves is who do we say He is? Will we individually and corporately allow Him to be who He already is? Because while we cannot stop Jesus from being Lord, we can stop Jesus from being our Lord. And so Jesus still looks at us and says, Who do you say I am? Well, my mom grew up in the Church of the Brethren, and my dad used to be a Lutheran. Well, that's nice, Jesus said. I'm not asking you about your religious history. I'm asking you, who do you say I am? Well, uh, I served on two committees last year, and I, I came every Wednesday night, even went on a mission trip. That's nice, Jesus said, but I didn't ask you how busy you were last year. I'm asking, who do you say I am? Well, I, I just finished reading this really great book on Christian apologetics and, and that's nice Jesus says but I didn't ask you what great ideas you are pondering right now I am asking who do you say I am we can be interested in Jesus we can be curious about Jesus we can even be fascinated about Jesus but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have surrendered to Jesus I never really got it when I was growing up, she said to me in a conversation. I grew up in a religious home, mostly. We went to church with some regularity. I, I heard the stories about Jesus, and, and I knew that we were supposed to live by certain, well, let's just say principles. But I never got it that, that Jesus was more than just an interesting figure from history. He, he's somebody who wants a personal relationship with me. I never got that, and then, and then one day, out of the blue, it all changed. I heard the gospel message presented, and it was as though I was hearing it for the first time. And my life has never been the same since. That's what she said to me. Well, what happened to her? I think she finally heard Jesus look at her in the face and ask her, Who do you? Say, I am. There were plenty of people in Jesus' day who were intrigued by him. 
Some apparently even decided to tag along with him just to see what he would do next. But the general consensus was that he was not the Messiah. He didn't fit their expectations. And for the most part, people then, as people now, were not really all that eager to have their opinions challenged and changed. They were still waiting on something or someone else. Meanwhile, Jesus went consistently about the work that the Father had sent him to do, calling sinners to repentance and preparing to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice. And as he went, he would pull people aside and cutting through all of the noise and the confusion and the distractions and the debates flying around him, he would look at them and he would ask, who do you say I am? Are we prepared to answer that question? Let's pray together. Father God, we have called you many things. But help us in this hour, most of all and above all, to call you Lord and Christ. Help us to enthrone you first and foremost in our lives. That everything else about us may be evaluated in light of who you are. Call us individually to repentance that we might turn from our closed minds and our hard hearts. And that we might come to recognize you as the risen and reigning Lord. That is our prayer, and we make it in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The gospel requires a response. It always has from each one of us. For some here today, the response may have something to do with the fact that you've never declared Jesus as Lord and you've never answered that question intentionally and consciously if that's where you are then as we sing here in a moment I would just invite you to come forward and we'll celebrate as you begin that journey but he's still asking the same question to all of us what are you going to do about me given where you are on your journey right now given what's going on in your life right now who do you say I am in this moment and what are you going to allow me to do in you and through you I pray that as we worship together we will be open responding to the Spirit's call. Let's stand and worship Him together.